Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. All right, well, would you pray with me? Lord, we want to, uh, to give you these next minutes. Lord, we want to do that every time we gather, and this morning is no exception. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word and begin to consider something that is, is quite significant, God, I pray and, and ask that you would come and, and teach I pray that you'd guard my words from error. God, as we look at many different places in your word, that you would give us the ability we need to think well. That you'd help us to see the significance of what it is that we turn our attention to this morning and that we might see how you have provisioned for us the very things that we need. And so God, in, in these next moments and in this morning, I pray that you would be magnified, that you would be exalted. We thank you for what Christ has done for us and how he has taken our penalty and he has purchased for us redemption and he has forgiven us. And God, for all of those reasons, I pray that we would draw near now as he allows us to do. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, as I indicated last week, this morning, we are going to turn our attention to really asking and, and Lord willing, answering well the question, why church membership? Uh, it, it's a question that the book of Titus does not ask. And so we are stepping outside of the book of Titus this morning. Uh, but it is a question that I do think is significant for us to ask. And there will be things that I believe the book of Titus gives implication for. But our attention will not solely be focused on what Paul wrote to Titus, but what else is in uh, the rest of the New Testament. Um, if, if Paul is going to give instruction to Titus to appoint elders in local churches and to set into order things in God's house, there's a few things that that implies. It implies, A, that there were different cities on the island of Crete that had local churches there. Those were the very places that Titus was to go and appoint elders for. He was not told, Titus was not told, that he was the only elder on the island of Crete and that all the local churches had to go appeal to him. He was not told to only appoint a group of elders that all the local churches would appeal to. So by implication, there is in the very heart of Paul's exhortation to Titus, this idea that local churches had local elders, and now you begin to play out some of then the broader questions of church membership and those distinctions uh, if you were to ask this morning, where's the verse that says, thou shalt be a member, there is not a verse that says that. It's not in there, it's, it's nowhere to be found, but I do think that we will see, hopefully I believe that we will see that church membership is biblical, it is spoken about extensively in the scriptures where, and even though there is not a verse that just says 
thou shalt be a member. And I'll be real honest with you, this has been personally a very, very convicting couple of weeks for me as I've studied this. Um, I, I knew we were going to get here like eight months ago, and the, the, the heavy prep for this morning really began two and three weeks ago, and I'm always trying to work ahead so that when the week comes, it's not ferocious and furious. And, and so the, the last couple of weeks have been incredibly personally convicting for me, um, not because my beliefs in regards to these things have changed, um, but because I've realized that the way that I have communicated the significance of church membership has not been in line with the very beliefs that I do have and the very things that we will aim to look at this morning. And I think of a conversation I had with David just a few weeks ago at the Waynesburger. What I'm going to share this morning never came up in conversation with David. And that is, that is to my fault because the very things we are going to look at this morning, I believe, strike at the heart of why church membership is so significant. And when he and I get together for lunch to talk about him becoming a church member, none of these things were shared with him. And so my very communication uh, in regards to these things as it has taken form on an individual level, I don't think has been in line with the very things that I believe the scriptures to teach and so, David, I need you to kind of just close your eyes and put yourself back there at the corner of 16 in South Potomac. And, and if the rest of you want to join him, the food was good, the company was great, and here, really, we're going to bring the content now. But as we consider church membership, your, your understanding of its significance will be directly tied to your understanding of salvation and sanctification. And what I mean by sanctification is, is the process by which the Lord grows us and matures us as His disciples. Your view of church membership will be distinctively shaped by your view of salvation and sanctification and if it is your opinion that salvation and sanctification are things just done in isolation, and if they are just individual acts that, that is only the Lord interacting with you, then you will have conclusions that see church membership as being perhaps old-fashioned and irrelevant. And, and, you know, why do I just need to do this? Because it's a vote at a business meeting, and that seems like a waste of my time. And, but if you see church membership distinctively attached an incredibly important part of the process of sanctification. It begins to take a whole other form where it's not just a vote at a business meeting. It becomes part and parcel to the very process that the Lord puts us into when we are saved that causes us to more reflect the image of Jesus. And so all of that to say, I believe more strongly than perhaps I ever have believed that church membership is significantly attached to the process that the Lord has us in where we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And if we find ourselves out of step and not willing or not at a point where we're affirming our unity with other brothers and sisters and our willingness to say you know what biblically your business is my business and my business is your business because that's how the Lord has formed and structured these things to work this is not just in regards to a business meeting and a vote this is by and large in regards to our holiness and we will see that play out as we consider many of these things. But just in regards to the process of us being made more holy, being made more into the image of Christ, we need to see a few places that, that really speak to the overarching purpose of why we are even saved. And one of the big ideas is, is, is communicated in Romans 8.29 that those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he, Jesus, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now this is the verse directly after the one we love to quote, and we know that God works together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
Well, that verse, Romans 8.28, begs the question, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of his calling? What's the purpose of all of the things, whether good or not, that he is working? Well, it's now spoken of in 8.29. The purpose is that there's conformity to the image of Jesus. The purpose is is that you and I would look more like Jesus. And what Paul says in Romans 8.28, and we know that for God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, Paul is not saying that all things are good. There are things that are not good. There are things, quite frankly, that are evil. There are things that, that we look at and we go, why, God, did you allow that? And to conclude that those things are good, I think can be a bit ignorant and naive because they're not good. And no, no reasonable form or, or, or understanding of just humanity would allow us to conclude that those things are good. But Paul argues that they're for good. And there's an incredible difference because God takes those things which may be evil things, which are difficult things, and he works them for good, for his purpose of conforming us into the image of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul again in very similar ways says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. That would be the image of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. He speaks about this process, about this transition that believers undergo. And church membership is a part of that. It's vital to that. And if you believe that growing in holiness is just something you are responsible for all by yourself, you're not going to really see the value of church membership as anything beyond, well, I need to vote and I need to have some responsibility. But as we look at these scriptures, I think what we will begin to see unfold is that what should have been said to David in the Waynesburger about two months ago when we met was, David, if you're going to be a member, you are saying to me that my relationship with the Lord is now your concern. And that I now have the permission to have the same exact concern for your relationship with the Lord. That should have been what I said. Because that begins to strike at the broader purposes of church membership. A vote at a business meeting, that's an American thing. That's not, a, that's not a biblical thing. And there's reasons why we have to do it. So I'm not denouncing the order and good order that, that our own Robert Rules allows us and requires us to have. That stuff has its function. But that's an American thing. It's not a biblical thing. Church membership goes way beyond that. So we're going to consider these things, and and here's the definition that is on your notes page that I I think could be a helpful definition for us. It's the covenantal commitment to mutually care for one another, mutually submit to one another, and mutually join with one another in mission so that God may be glorified and disciples may be made. You see that it's a covenant commitment, that, that we don't see church membership as contractual, There's no terms placed on this thing, and it's covenantal, because if it's not covenantal, you're actually not ever going to walk through the process of caring for one another, because the care for one another is to put into practice the 59 one another's that are found in the New Testament, and some of those say forgive one another, bear with one another, and if you are working on a contractual basis and not covenantal, When somebody sins against you, if it's contractual, I'm out. I'm going down the road where they don't sin. But if it's covenantal, stakes are now much higher, and there's a commitment to go, you know what? This forgive one another thing, it's going to be hard. But we've been commanded to do it. It's a covenantal commitment to mutually care, mutually submit, and mutually join together in mission so that God may be glorified and disciples may be made. And we're going to consider then the reasons 
for this covenantal commitment in three areas. We're going to look at the priority of local church involvement, the responsibilities of local church leaders, and the responsibility of local church members. So in regards to the first, the priority of local church involvement, we need to also speak of and understand that that the church is universal and it is also local. We need to understand that there's this relationship between the church universal and the church local. And, and I, I, I was trying to think of a way to describe this. And one of the best things that came to mind, and, and I don't intend to offend anybody by saying this, but the church is in some ways similar to Walmart. I can go online to walmart.com. I can buy something. I can have it shipped to my house. And if I buy enough, then it ships free. And if I don't like what I bought, I don't have to ship it back. I can take it to the store. They can put it into their inventory system. And if they have like items, they can actually reshelve it and sell it to you when you go to look for that item. And, and so you have, you have this, this company that has a, a broad kind of universal aspect to it. And then they got all these local stores around. And the church in some ways is similar. It's not a... It's not a foolproof analogy but there's similarities there in that the church universal is everywhere it is all tongues tribes nationalities it will one day be all and by all i mean all right now it is it is in process of getting there but we can go to a church in africa and rightly say these are brothers and sisters but yet there is a distinction between that church in africa and us so there's a distinction between the church universal and the church local. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, we need to also understand that he's writing to a local church with these verses. But what he writes is incredibly important because he is entered in, just entered in, 13 verses ago at the beginning of chapter 12 into a conversation to try and set the record straight in regards to this priority or hierarchy that the members of the church in Corinth believed that existed. They thought that if some people had more, um, more extravagant spiritual gifts, that God must have loved them more. In the beginning verses of chapter 12, verses 1 to 8 specifically, he just completely debunks that entire argument. And then the whole rest of the chapter, he continues to just pound away at that misconception to say, no, all gifts are supernatural and everyone has been baptized into the body. And so there is not a distinction of significance or priority, but there may be a distinction of function. And so in the verses 14 and following, he will launch into, well, not every part of the body is an ear. Not every part of the body is an eye. And if you have all the eyes, where's the hearing? And if you have all the ears, where's the sight? And so he begins to speak of these things in ways that matter greatly because in regards to the universal church, we can see that all believers have been baptized into one body. We understand that to mean that when we place our salvation and trust, when we place our faith and trust in Christ for salvation, the Spirit comes and takes residence inside of us. He comes and indwells us. There's not this secondary moment that we're seeking for where the Spirit is going to come and do that work. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That is a way to describe the, the being made Christians and being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So the church universal is important for us to understand. Carrie and I, well, I, I spoke to them and have chatted with Carrie since then. There's a few missionaries that are over in China and planning to go over there. Um, if, the, if the locations and the days work out correctly, the possibility for us going to a church in China on a Sunday morning exists. And I think it could be just tremendous. I won't have a clue what they say. They probably won't have a clue what I said. I'm going to try to have some phrases in Chinese on my phone so that I can like, show them and maybe they can read it. And, but there will be an, an, an aspect of we're a part of the church. We go over there. These are brothers and sisters. 
but there's also a great distinction between that church that we may visit over in China and this church over here that we have said, you know, we're a part of you. So there's a priority placed on local church involvement. That priority begins to now see itself expressed in the responsibilities of local church leaders. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this first part because we have spent the last two weeks on this first part. What you see in regards to the application of the last two weeks now affects our conversation in regards to church membership. But local church leaders have a responsibility for shepherding. They have a responsibility to teach. They have a responsibility to care, to guard, to feed. And the question is needed to be asked, well, who are they actually responsible for? This gets it back after to the distinction between universal and local church. Am I responsible for all of the believers in Waynesboro, or am I uniquely responsible for the believers that are members here? That's part of the question that needs to be asked. I'm told that I will give an account for the souls that I have been placed in and given responsibility for. Is that all souls? Is that worldwide souls? Is that local souls? These are some of the really important questions that come out of this. One pastor said this, and I think it's helpful for us. He says, the elders of a church are not responsible for the spiritual well-being of every individual who visits the church, who attends sporadically. Rather, they are primarily responsible to shepherd those who, are, who have submitted themselves to the care and authority of the elders. And this is done through church membership. There's a priority of responsibility that is placed on the elders to teach and care and guard and feed, and biblically that priority is placed for those that say, I'm in. The responsibilities of local church leaders are shepherding. They also include modeling Christ-like behaviors. Elders are told, and actually this is written to the members of this local church, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So if you're told to imitate the faith of leaders in the church, what leaders are those? Is that leaders of the church of Otterbein? Is that leaders of our church? Is that leaders of the church in China? How do you know that the character and life of church leaders in China is worth you imitating? These are some of the practical questions that begin to, I think, broadly address and answer the question, is church membership biblical in the absence of a thou shalt be a member? If you're to remember your leaders and you're to imitate their faith, that implies that there is an intimate knowledge of their faith. You can look at them and go, you know what, that, that man's a good father. I'm going to imitate the way he fathers. That man has walked with the Lord for decades and, and has patterned his life in obedience. I'm going to imitate that. And you have here the responsibility of local church leaders to model Christ-like lives. Thirdly, you have the responsibility of local church leaders to be a part of discipline. Now, discipline is both instructive and it is corrective. And we have to understand discipline is both aspects because the instructive function of discipline happens all the time. It happens all the time in regards to the ministry of the church. Quite frankly, it happens all the time in, in regards to the, the, the responsibilities of parenting and what I do when I teach Tucker how to throw a ball, what Carrie does when she teaches Allegra how to sew a stitch, what we do when we teach them how to cook, that is all instructive discipline. The word discipline comes from the word disciple, which just simply means to follow. So we are essentially saying, Tucker, follow me as I throw a ball. Allegra, follow mom as she sews a stitch. It's instructive. The same thing happens here on Sunday mornings, as your CE teachers teach you the Word of God, as your children are being taught the Word of God, as you have the opportunity to join us in this room to look at the Word of God together. This is all a function of instructive discipline. This gets back to teaching, caring, guarding, feeding. This is all bound up into the purpose of instructive discipline. And there is also corrective discipline. And this is where we will see most formally where our understanding of membership needs to be attached to an understanding of holiness. 
So the word church discipline can sound like a scary word, and we like to throw around, well, Matthew 18, and, and we're going we're gonna to step into that, and we're going to consider those things. But we need to consider those things in light of the purpose that God has actually saved us for in the process that we all find ourselves in. The purpose is that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. The process is being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So discipline has to fall in and fit within God's purpose and process. And so you have Matthew 18. 1 Corinthians 5 is another text that we will briefly summarize. But I didn't want to put all the verses on the screen because the print would have been really, really tiny. Here's the highlights. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The text will go on to say, and if he repents, you have won your brother. So, church discipline, quote-unquote, begins as a conversation between two people. It's nothing real formal, nothing real scary. It's a conversation. Hey, you... I saw this, perhaps did I see this correctly, did I hear this correctly, this is what I think I saw, this is what I think I heard, help me understand, and if it is not in step, then it's, you know, man, I think that was out of step with what the scriptures say, and if your brother agrees, then you have won him over, see, the purpose in every one of these steps is restoration, the purpose in every one of these steps is that we may grow in holiness, But if that doesn't work, you have step two. You take one or two others along with you. And and Jesus goes on to say so that the matter may be established by every... Uh, by the charge of every two or three witnesses. And it's, un, it's unclear whether or not those were witnesses to the initial act or whether they were witnesses to the conversation that you're having. But the re, regardless, the idea here is that the, the testimony of two or three witnesses was considered binding in Jewish society. And so that's where you have this instruction being given. You take one or two others along with you. And the idea there is that you still go and tell him his fault. And you still plead with him to repent. And at that point, if he indeed does, then you have won your brother over and you go out and rejoice. But if that doesn't happen, three, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, church leaders would begin to engage between parts two and three. And Jesus doesn't specifically say, go get the elders of the church and do this. We would be interjecting that where if if the two or three witnesses didn't work and that individual was still unwilling to recognize and unwilling to repent, then, then I think it would be appropriate for the church leaders to get involved and then they would perhaps go and collectively plead with this individual to recognize what he did is wrong and to repent of that and to seek restoration. But if that doesn't work either, then you go to step four. If he refuses to listen even to the church, you have then the, the church itself collectively, its membership pleading with this individual to repent. And if he refuses, then you let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. What that means is that you begin to treat that individual like an unbeliever. Because that individual has demonstrated over a significant period of time they are unwilling to repent of sin that is in their lives. That is not a characteristic of believers. That is a characteristic of unbelievers. And Jesus says you now treat them like that. Now for us, an unbeliever is certainly welcome here on Sunday mornings. Certainly welcome to sing. Certainly welcome to participate in fellowship. They're welcome. We, we, we would see that an unbeliever would not be welcome at the communion table. Because that is for believers and believers exclusively. So there are, there are things here where we, we can't just hop on to the word excommunicate and think that we have booted them out of the door never to be allowed to return again. No, there's just a recognition that, you know what, your life is demonstrating and has habitually demonstrated that you are not walking with the Lord. So you are welcome to come, but we are going to plead with you each time you come to repent of your sin, as we would with any believer. Now, I want to say that this process of discipline should not be thought of as all happening in a week. 
think what you have here is months, if not years, for this process to take place. Where there's multiple instances where an individual is pled with to repent of their sin. We're in the process right now of having um, a church discipline position paper put together. It's part of the Constitution revision that I mentioned to you last week. We want to very, very clearly identify what the process is and its intent and goal, that being restoration. I've asked Justin Walter if he would take the lead in writing that paper because at his home church, he participated twice in a church discipline process. Not him as the one disciplined, but him as an individual that was a part of the process of another individual. So he not only has a biblical knowledge of this, but he also has a very practical understanding having walked through this. And the responsibility of church leaders includes discipline. It's both instructive and corrective. And this responsibility now begins to spill over into the responsibilities of local church members, where local church members have a responsibility to discipline, both instructive and corrective as well. You can see there in steps three and four, the local church has now engaged. And so as we begin to move to the responsibilities of local church members, you still have Matthew 18, 15 to 20 as a important text for us. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. There Paul addresses the church in Corinth and says, it has been reported That you are allowing a man living in gross sexual immorality, in unrepentant sexual immorality, to have full fellowship with you. That should not be. And Paul begins to walk through some steps for them of how they are to address that. And that will end up including, if the man is unwilling to repent, then you put him out for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul might be saved. And he goes as far to say, you don't share a meal with the man. And those are strong words. But the purpose behind the words spoken in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, again, conforms to the purpose that God has us all in to be conformed with the image of Christ and the process by which that happens, being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And he says, church, you are a part of this. And to be unwilling to recognize the seriousness of an individual living in unrepentant sin. You are complicitly allowing and giving approval for them to not be growing in holiness. And it should not be. And so there's radical steps that he says to the fact of, you don't share a meal. There's a responsibility of local church members to be engaged and involved in the discipline process step one of Matthew 18 that we just looked at was if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault that's on you that's not go and tell the pastor and have him go and tell him his fault no you go because you go and you say I saw this and, and I, I think just practically it's always good to go and, and, and ask for clarification did I see this correctly? Did I hear this correctly? I heard this and I need to understand whether or not it's true. Can you set the record straight for me? And it's always better to go asking questions than rather making accusations. But you are engaging and going because you're willing to say, David, your holiness is my business. And my holiness, David, is your business And David has permission to go, hey Tim, I think I saw some things that are out of step with what the Lord would call you to, did I see them correctly? And I have the same responsibility in his life because growing in our holiness and relationship with the Lord, the Lord considers actually just that important. Well, secondly, after the responsibilities of discipline, you have here each other's holiness. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, let us hold Fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, what we have in this text 
and we are hopping into it without any context. But the writer of Hebrews has, for the better part of ten and a half chapters, been walking through and repeatedly exhorting the individuals he is writing to to not give up. He has fully acknowledged that it is hard to walk with the Lord. They had been receiving outside pressure, perhaps from Jews that were unwilling to recognize that Christ was the Messiah, and there was pressure, and there was perhaps even persecution. These might have been believers that even had to flee at some point or another, and he has repeatedly been exhorting them to not give up, and he does so again, and he leads off in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession. It means you don't give up. Let us do it without wavering. Let us not neglect to meet together, but encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. I think what you have there is a really honest statement that says life can be discouraging. This idea of of following the Lord can be discouraging at times, and you and I, in many ways, can be God's mouthpiece in one another's lives to say, don't give up. Don't give up. It's worth it. It's worth it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I know I've shared this story before, and and I just think it's so appropriate that I had a conversation with a young man like this where he was asked, I actually asked him to do things to follow the Lord that he wanted to do but fully recognized my family will not understand it all. I said, yeah, you're probably right. It's probably only the people of God that will understand. And that man, week after week, came and was encouraged to not give up. Don't give up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Yes, it's hard. That position that you took at work to stand up for truth and not compromise, it's hard. You might be getting pressure from the boss. Don't give up. It's worth it. Don't give up with that conviction of honoring the Lord with your body and with your mind despite what pressure you may find in the high school halls. It's worth it. See, church membership formalizes this commitment between believers. It formalizes this relationship between believers that says, you know what, David? I'm going to be responsible for pleading that you not give up. And you have the responsibility to be responsible for me not giving up. We are not islands in isolation in our relationship with the Lord. We have been put into a body and we have been given the responsibility to plead with one another to keep your eyes on Jesus and not give up. Church membership formalizes that commitment. Church membership and the responsibilities for local church members gives you very practical ways to live out the one another's. I mentioned earlier there's 59 of them. We're not going to read all of them this morning. A couple of them say greet one another with a holy kiss. I think those we can, we can modify to handshake, fist bump, you know. There's an idea there of being willing to engage and welcome and celebrate the presence of one another. But to live out the one another's implies that there's a commitment to actually live out the one another's. Because if you're not committed to do it, when you get to the ones that say forgive one another as God's forgiven you, and you consider, wait, what all has God forgiven me of? Holy smokes, I've got to forgive them to that degree? That's what Jesus said to Peter when Peter came. How many times do I got to forgive my brother? Is it seven times? You've got to wonder if, if Peter had just been offended the seventh time. Can I now just be done with this? Now, 70 times seven, Peter. You just multiply that by, by 70, and then we're going to get close. And that actually is recorded right on the heels of Jesus teaching about church discipline as well. 
If you don't live out the one another's covenantally and you perhaps begin to approach them contractually, then you begin to weigh terms. Well, they did this. I don't like that. I'm out. But a covenantal understanding says, you know what? No, I'm in regardless. And I've been called to be in regardless. Local church members have a responsibility to live out the one another's. And you may you may be noticing that many of these things are similar to the very reasons and explanations why we've given that Christ-centered community groups are so important. They are important because you get to do all of these things on a much deeper level. There's an element of all of these things that happens here and should happen here, and there's a function of the gathering of the body on Sunday mornings that is vital to our relationship with the Lord. But you can kick that in a whole nother notch when you have the opportunity to sit with four or five other people. Conversations go a little deeper. That care, that living out happens a whole lot more deeply. Lastly, and we've mentioned this already, but Hebrews thirteen seventeen says that you are to submit to your leaders. The writer of Hebrews says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be a no advantage to you. Again, you have those really important questions that strike at the question, is church membership even biblical? If you're to obey your leaders, what leaders are those? How do you know what leaders they are? We've given you the definition of elders as those who have been appointed and selected as, as godly qualified individuals out of you. That implies that you have had the opportunity to look at their lives. That implies that you know who those individuals are and you've seen the character of those individuals lived out. And these are the individuals that you're told to obey and to submit. And then those leaders are spoken of and said, they're keeping watch over your souls. And they will give an account for your souls. I do believe that I will be held accountable for what I preach in the hearing of anyone who hears. But I will be held more accountable for the souls that I have been given the responsibility to watch. And elders share in this responsibility and it is a tremendous weight. And when you just consider that, when you, when you consider the qualifications of elders that we looked at, 24 of them, you consider the weight of the responsibility that they have, and it's a wonder that, that anybody would ever choose to do this. And I think you see behind that that they've probably not chosen God has called. But leaders are to care for souls and will give an account for those souls. God has uniquely designed his body both universally and locally to accomplish his purpose in salvation and even the process that that takes. And, and I'll, I'll say this, if you're, if you're here checking us out, I think there's room and there's freedom to not sign on the dotted line right away. It, it, I think it's needed But if you would say grace is my home church and you haven't been willing to sign on the line, I do think you're out of step with the scriptures. So there's freedom to know the leaders you're going to submit to. And you should be investigating that because you need to know the character of these individuals that you are saying, watch over my soul. But if you find yourself at that point and yet unwilling to say, all right, I'm in, I think you find yourself out of step with the scriptures, not out of step with what our church believes, not out of step with what I personally have convictions for. I, I really do believe you are out of step with the scriptures. And God has ordered his body and created uniquely his body to be a part of the very purposes he has in salvation that we might be conformed to the image of Christ and the process by which that takes that we're transformed from one degree of glory to another 
And so church membership is the covenantal commitment to universally care for one another, or I'm sorry, mutually care for one another, mutually submit to one another, and mutually join with one another in mission so that God may be glorified and disciples may be made. Now, to put some, some steps to this, as you leave this morning in your boxes, and if you don't have a box, there will be an usher in the foyer that can give you a copy. We have for you what has been drafted by the leaders of the church that is called the Grace Membership Covenant. And the reason why this has been drafted and why the reason why we are giving it to you is because we believe that it's actually really important for you that are members of the church to be engaged to the degree that you have the opportunity to say yes or no to this document. We think it's that important and the membership process is that important. What this document seeks to do is clarify what we understand to be a baseline a baseline look at membership. There's four aspects to it. There's a commitment to an affirmation of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. There is a commitment to biblical doctrine that we realize and recognize and submit ourselves to the authority of the scriptures as the highest authority in our lives. There is a commitment, there's a section of promises from the leadership to those of you that are members And there's a section of commitments and promises from those of you that are members to the rest of you that are members. And the purpose of this document is to try to bring some some more formal understanding of what it is we are pledging ourselves to when we do this thing called church membership. What are we actually saying to one another? Now, as you review the document, I need you to do two things for me. I need you to read through it, and I need you to ask yourself, have they said anything that the Bible doesn't say? And by that, I mean this. Some church membership covenants, and you can actually Google them and find them, will have in there, church members will not drink. And if you become a church member, you have to sign a church covenant. You are affirming that I, as a church member, I will not drink in we would see that to be something the Bible does not explicitly say. The Bible certainly gives the prohibition against drunkenness, but the partaking of a glass of wine or whatever, the same could be said for dancing, the same could be said for movies. At times, unfortunately, a document such as this has been used as more of a legalistic um, group than than really a, a tool that sees the broader teachings of the scriptures placed in a way that can be understood easily. And so we need you to read through that and ask that question. If you find something in there that is out of step with the scriptures, we need you to raise that red flag because your leaders are not seeking to ask you to do anything that the scriptures don't ask you to do. So the scriptures don't tell you to not dance. They actually would go completely to the other side and say, you probably should shake it a little bit for Jesus. So we can't build that in, and we've really sought to specifically not have anything like that built in, but if you find something, we need you to, we need you to raise that red flag because it's that important. But then secondly, we need to just ask yourself, is, is this just a summary of what the New Testament outlines that believers are to do? And we really think you'll find the answer to that question, yes, but it's a question that you need to ask yourself, and you need to ask yourself as you read through the document. Because again, we're not trying to ask you to do anything that the scriptures don't already ask you to do. So this document is just a tool that tries to comprise all of what the New Testament says. This is baseline believer stuff. And put it in a place that you can very easily and succinctly read it. That's the heart and intent of the document. And what we see this document then doing is giving us a way to affirm what we understand membership to be. It's not just a vote at a business meeting. It's you and I committing and pledging our lives to be intentional with one another and encouraging each other to grow in the Lord. And so as you 
leave, you will find that document in your box or there will be an usher in the foyer. On April 10th, which is two weeks after Easter, we will have a special business meeting after the service and we will then have the opportunity for discussions and I I really believe, Lord willing, the ratification of this document that we're going to ask you as the members to vote and to say, yes, we, we want this. So April 10th, we will seek to do that after the service. So as you read through that over the next four weeks, where and if you have questions or where and if you have red flags, I need you to come and I need you to have those conversations with me. I want you to because we're not trying to bury anything in this document that the scriptures don't say. This is not a power play document. This is trying to be a helpful tool that brings and composes the broader teaching of the New Testament in regards of what it just means to be a believer and put it in a place that can be easily referenced and accessible. And then I think what we will do out of that moving forward is that we will begin seeking to have membership classes twice a year. And that will do a couple things for us. That will give some formality to the process of becoming membership where we're able to, to have some standardization of communication. So that it's not just me meeting David in the Waynesburger, hopefully remembering to say what I should say. We, we, have, we have a greater process to that where those that are there can hear collectively these things and there can be the, the formality of, okay, these, these are the important things parts to cover that strike at and express, Lord willing, the very things the New Testament teaches. So I think membership is incredibly important and is needed and is needed for us as we are in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ and as that process happens from one degree of glory to the next. So as takeaways for you, as you leave, you will find that document in your box. If you don't have a box, there will be an usher that has one available for you. And then we will aim to have a meeting on April 10th. Would you pray with me? And the band's going to close us in song. Lord, we ask, Lord, we ask that you'd help us to understand how important It is that we need one another in this process of being made into the image of Jesus. And God, so I I pray that you would break down any ideas of us isolated, as us individualized, and help us understand that we need each other, and that you have so designed and purposed your body to do that. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.